Hi, welcome to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This is Josh Campson. Another episode here from season two. Thanks for sticking with us. Today's interviewee is Jeffrey Feldman. He's the managing member at the Feldman Firm, LLC. He essentially handles business divorces. Uh, So we learned today about the similarities between a regular marriage and a business partnership and the similarities between those divorces and how they can go awry. We also talk a lot about camp people, people that go to camp, people that don't believe in camp, uh, as well as somebody that types things wrong, even though they know how to say them. So it's an interesting interview as always, and we get the longest answer to the age old question of the Oxford comma. Give it a listen. I think you'll enjoy it. If you do remember, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We're doing five stars uh, only. If you have any complaints, send them to Montgomery Bar Association, and I promise I will not read them. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Josh Campson. Enjoy the show. Well, Jeff, welcome to Interrogatories, and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, apologies. I know we had to reschedule this a couple of times because of me running around like a crazy person and then getting COVID, but I'm glad you were able to accommodate. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, touch wood, for now at least. Who knows, until we get it again. Uh, so I think, I don't, I don't know if you're our fanciest lawyer that we've had. I don't know if I've had anyone else that graduated from Penn. That's like a that's like a proper law school. Uh, uh, it, uh, it, it was, I think no one was more surprised than me, I think, that I that I was there as well. But that yes. you got in or that you made it through? Little of each, little of each. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to law school, so I really wasn't familiar with the customs, mores, and traditions of, of these institutions. It was a big learning curve. So you were like, oh, I'll just go, Penn sounds good. It's in Pennsylvania. I guess I'll just go there. That sounds like something to shoot for. Well, I mean, this is my hometown, so I was, I was familiar with it. And I, I mostly applied to law schools in, in Philly and D.C. I thought for a while I might be a government lawyer, so I applied to some D.C. areas, uh, law schools. But um, yeah, it was just a, a really lucky opportunity. I think my class uh, was the largest class in Penn Law history at the time. They just added a third section. So uh, I had a lot of fortunate things break my way. OK, so they were letting more people in is what you're saying. The proof is right here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, when we talk to people here, uh, what we talk to them about, as listeners know, is less about kind of like what they do day to day and more their journey, how they ended up where they are, et cetera. So a lot of people that go to, you know, really good law schools. I went to Pitt. Right. So that's how I end up down here in the mud. But people that go to Penn uh, and, and these other schools usually end up at a huge firm. And it looks like you didn't or in a judge clerkship or something like that, or just partying at the Supreme Court, whatever they do, I don't know. Um, stuff that's too smart for me. But uh, so you end up at some small firm in Philly. Yes. Well, what's that all about? You didn't you didn't want to do the white shoe law firm experience? Uh, definitely not at first. Uh, my uh, interest was always being in the courtroom um, and trying to get practical experience. I had worked for a neighborhood law office while I was an undergrad. Um, a friend of my family had a friend that had a neighborhood law office uh, at uh, Castor and Cotman Avenues in Northeast Philly. And it was like- Wait, I'm sorry, what's a neighborhood law office? Like a storefront law office where there's one lawyer, maybe two, um, some paralegals and legal assistants, some typewriters. Um, it, was, uh, it was next to a dental office. And just a, a small would, firm with a storefront. Yeah. And people would come in, you know, and they would uh, come in 
and whatever they needed. They needed a will. They were in trouble with the law. They needed a bankruptcy, uh, whatever they had going on. Um, and there was a lot of personal injury work. And so I got to see sort of the day to day. And that was uh, my experience with the law was I was running around in my 1982 Honda Court hatchback that my brother gave to me. And I would file bankruptcies in the bankruptcy court by dropping papers in a box. And I'd bail people out of jail by going to city hall and putting the check down and then going out to pick or the detention center and bailing them out. Um, and so I got a lot, I used to mock up poster boards for intersectional accidents. And my, my boss who who'd passed away, sadly, he was, uh, he was very kind to me. Uh, he had these little matchbox cars that he'd roll over poster boards that I draw to show how the intersectional accidents happened. And he used to hold up the, the little matchbox cars and say, this one's made me $300,000. This mm-hmm. one's made me $200,000. And so I, I came at it from a very basic level. And so uh, a very sort of personal human level. And so going to uh, Penn Law was a big departure from the practice of law that I had sort of watched happen in front of me. And it sort of participated in in a very tiny way. And, um, so I'm, I'm essentially picturing like Saul Goodman's office from uh, Breaking Bad, right? There's a big statue, blow up Statue of Liberty here, and or like the waving hand guy. I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to embarrass myself and say I don't catch the references guy. I haven't watched the show, so I, okay. I well, pull yourself together. Yeah. Um, you don't I, need to watch Better Call Saul, but at least Breaking Bad is one of the best TV shows ever made. I, I am. I am not a prestige television guy for some reason. I've I've missed out on them all. Uh, I'm like uh, I guess I'm. I've got a big cultural. Uh, the word I want to use is lacuna, uh, it's like an empty spot. Um, yeah. Where, uh, you know, I haven't seen The Wire. I haven't seen Breaking Bad. I haven't seen uh, this, the, the, what's the mafia one? I'm missing it. Uh, Sopranos? Sopranos, thank you. Um, I don't, I, I don't have, I, for a long time, I, I didn't have any of those channels. And I, plus I had young kids uh, right, right after I got married. So I had prestige uh parenting going on <laughs> yeah yeah well but now your kids you got one in college one in high school so you're going to have an empty nest soon well yeah it's it's it seems to be on the horizon um but uh yeah i don't i don't know where my daughter has in mind um but i think she'll probably wind up in new england somewhere um upstate new york maybe that's uh my kids spent a lot of time there growing up over the summers they spent a lot of time in a, a summer camp that's up by the canadian border um, in the deep Adirondacks. So that's, oh, so you ship them out for the summer. Yeah. They, um, they've gone there since they were little kids and it's really been, uh, it's a, it's my wife had an experience like that when she was a a little girl, um, in that part of the world. And so they, they go to a camp that is, uh, no electricity, no running water. Um, you have to get there by boat across the lake. It's, uh, yeah, it's very rustic and, uh, a very different world. If you ever saw it's, it's not far from the Danamora prison. If you ever saw um, those uh, movies about the escaped convicts in Danamora, no. um, well, one year we took them up and the three, was it two escaped convicts? And by the time we took them up there, they had caught one, but the other one was still on the loose. So, so yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a very different part of the world, but one that, that my family really relishes. I, I never spent any time there until I met my wife. I didn't even know anything about the Adirondacks, but that's a big part of my kids' lives. So this is not the Adirondacks where, oh God, we're not going to get this reference either. In Marvelous Miss Maisel, they go up to the Adirondacks and they vacation up there and whatever. No, this is although, this is the rustic Adirondacks. Yeah, I know enough to know. I think that's what you're, but that, that shows about the Catskills, right? So, yeah, oh, it's the Catskills. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So you you keep driving past the Catskills and then that's the part of the Adirondacks where my, 
My, it's not the closest major town is Plattsburgh. Uh, which oh, okay. Is, yeah, that's across Lake Champlain from Burlington, where where my son goes to college at uh, UVM. So I'm assuming it sounds like your wife was a camp person. I, I know people yeah. that are camp people. And so then yeah. your kids became camp people. And uh, that's interesting. So you ship them out. And how long is it that you get a vacation every summer? <laughs> well, I've got, I've got uh, young kids that aren't even in school yet. So to me, this uh, is like, it sounds amazing. Well, I mean, it, it's, uh, they didn't go there right away. Um, but, but they've been going since they were still in elementary school. Um, so when they were first campers, it was like a good six week program. Now, it's down to what one year was down to four weeks, uh, but now it's about five. And with staff training, it gets back up to around six. They both work now. Um, last summer, my son was a counselor. My daughter worked in the kitchen and now uh, they're they're both counselors. And it's it's you know, it's terrific. It's uh, it's really uh, I, I just it's a part of the I mean, I never went to camp growing up. My mom taught school. Mm-hmm. So she was home all summer. Um, and we you know, we just weren't a camp family. So um <laughs> so it just uh it's a it's part of the part of life I never really knew anything about. And uh and honestly, kind of like I it was it was always sort of a mystery to me. It was like looking through the glass window at someone else's life. Like uh um, but it's been it's been terrific for for my kids and given a lot of appreciation for nature and a lot of uh self-confidence where you know you're you're hiking high peaks in the Adirondacks and you've got other people counting on you and you've got a you get your stuff together in a serious way. It's it's pretty good. Yeah. And has this been um, off-putting to you? I know myself as a Jewish, uh, I am not a nature person. I don't go into woods. That's oh. my wife's my wife's department. So oh. we don't do <laughs> real hiking, uh, even though I am an Eagle Scout. So I guess I could oh, and I did well, it at one then. point. Yeah. Okay. But that's not what I do uh, anymore. I'm built for the suburbs. You know, I'm a oh. suburbs mouse anymore. So do you do the hiking and the camping I- and stuff now? With my family, they will get me out, um, but I, I don't do it as much as I'd like. Um, it's definitely something I enjoy, but I, I'm not conditioned to, like they are by the summer where they're they're pounding up, you know, high peaks, forty uh, sixers. Uh, now, but I last summer we did we did two uh, high peaks. I think uh, they counted, and around here, I'll, like I have a good friend who lives out in Chester County, and, and she and I will meet and do like. Mount Joy and Mount Misery on Valley Forge, which is, you know, it's not the Adirondacks, but it's a good afternoon. Right. Down. Yeah, it's not nothing. Yeah. So we got totally sidetracked. We were talking about, you know, you come out of law school, uh, you want to really practice law, but you didn't go to the, you said you were thinking about being a government lawyer, but you didn't decide to go to the DA's office or the public defender if you really wanted to cut your teeth? Yeah, I never really, I, I knew I was never cut out for criminal law because I just had this fundamental belief that if I represented someone and they lost money, they could always make more money. But if I represented someone and they lost time, they could never make more time. And the idea of someone being incarcerated and me spending months or years thinking, what could I have done different? It just, I don't know. I just knew I wasn't cut out for that scenario. Um, And uh, I was, but I've always been interested in the sort of the intellectual structures of the law and all the little rules and procedures and and uh that always interested me and so um i was always more focused on the civil side so you became a civil litigator yeah i mean when i started off at my first firm it was it was you know i was such a young guy and uh they they uh they were all generally older men and sadly it was men there was there was one female attorney at the time um and they just sort of were like, 
send the young guy out and do stuff or spend the day in the library and learn about this. You know, I, I have a case that involves some sort of mortgage issue and I don't know what the answer is, but I need to make this argument. Go learn about it. And uh, so I really got a chance to teach myself a lot. And and I, I did a lot of learning by doing. Um, I wind up, you know, at an arbitration representing a client, you know, and, and they would say to me, you look pretty young. Have you done this before? And I had to answer honestly and say, no, this is this is my first one. I got my law license about three weeks ago, but I'm sure it's going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, I do remember that case. I also I worked for the civil practice clinic at Penn Law. So I got a chance to represent clients while I was still in law school. And that was really great. So um, I, my first client rep was in a social security benefits hearing and it was at 841 uh, Chestnut Street. So when I go by that building, I always think about her and my first client. It really uh, it was quite a feeling. It was really yeah. Yeah, made a big did, impact. Did you win your first case? So I did. I did. Um, but I didn't know enough to know that I did. And my clinical law professor had to tell me on the bus on the way home when I was looking very crestfallen, uh, you know, you won, right? Um, <laughs> I, I, my client at the time, she had a lot of uh, addiction issues. And unfortunately, in, in addition to agoraphobia, she didn't leave her apartment. And the only person she saw was her boyfriend, who was also unfortunately an alcoholic. And there was, so I won benefits, but the question was who was going to be in, in custody of the money because she and her partner were both addicts, uh, alcoholics. And so, that issue was left open and I felt bad because I thought, well, who's going to get the money to them and how, but the important thing was one was she was, she won the benefits. So uh, I didn't practice social security disability outside of law school, but I, I did, I did get a W. Um, so what you're saying is you're undefeated in that area. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. the way you got to pitch it. I was, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not looking to market that practice. Right now, I, I've not kept up with it, but yeah, it was uh, it was great. I something I always tell folks that are going to law school is if you have the chance to do a clinical program, you should do it. It really um, it changed my law school experience entirely. I yeah, was, I, mean, I think it should be mandatory, but nobody yeah, agrees. It, not enough people agree with me on that. Yeah, I mean that third year of law school is really debatable, and uh, I, I wish more people did clinical something. Right. Agreed. Um, so you go to this firm, you're doing a little bit of everything. They're throwing you in the law library. They're throwing you into divorces and whatever. Yeah. Uh, and then what made you decide to focus on, it sounds like civil business law, really not like regular, not PI, not yeah. Well, other I, stuff. Yeah. I, well, so I, I, I've never done family law. It was mostly civil stuff from the start, but it was injury stuff. And um, I decided that the injury stuff really wasn't for me after doing that for about three years. Um, the firm I was at did a lot of med mal plaintiff, med mal defense, personal injury, and then uh, a lot of other civil work. Um, and I decided when I made the move to Montgomery McCracken, um, that's where I got more interested in the, in the business side. I, uh, I used to have to go with clients on IMEs, uh, medical exams, and like take for I, this was this used to be a thing. I see your expression. Okay, I'm making you know, a, it's this is an audio medium, but I'm making a. Uh, yeah. Are you just sneaking into people's doctor's appointments face? Because that sounds weird. Yeah, it, it was very strange. But I I went and my my boss wanted me to record what the medical examiner did during the exam, and the person had the right to counsel uh, during the exam. And I know it's not done anymore, but I would go 
well, people who were injured getting manipulated and tested. And it was very sad um, and people were were hurt. And I just knew, <laughs> just like I knew I didn't want to be a criminal lawyer, I, I came to the, the point where I was like, you know, the injury work is just not, it's not uh, something that I, I, I wanted to work with day to day. So I started getting more interested in, in the commercial and business work. And then when I went to Montgomery McCracken, um, I had a lot to prove because I came in as a lateral when they really had a homegrown program that they're very proud of. Um, I come from a firm that nobody had heard of. It was uh, very different culturally. And uh, it. Uh, <laughs> I remember very well that the chairman of the firm at the time said to me, uh, Jeff, at these prices, uh, we can't afford to make a mistake, meaning yeah. uh, we're paying these associates a lot. Um, it costs a lot to get you in the door. You better prove yourself. And so I set about doing that. And the first thing they did was throw me on a big case about a, a hospital that wanted to leave a hospital system. And there was a giant agreement and all kinds of principles of equity and a uh, very complex arbitration provision. And uh, I started to get thrown in right away into the meat of uh, more commercial cases. And I found out that it was interesting um, and that I, you know, there was still a human side to it. Right. And so to this day, uh, you know, I, I do what sometimes is referred to as business divorce. A lot of uh, business partners who can't get along with each other. And uh, and it really is very similar to a, a, a straight up divorce. Uh, there's just there's a lot of feelings and trust issues and uh, betrayals. Uh, it, yeah. So it, you said you decided you don't want to do regular divorces. So you decided to do business divorces. How did that? Yeah, it seems like it's just as adversarial. There's no <laughs> ah, but isn't there custody of clients and customers and websites Sometimes. and phone numbers and? Uh, yeah, once in a while. But you know, most of the time, it's really about it's really about money and control, um, which again is probably similar to divorces in that way. But yeah. uh, it, uh, I, I find it very interesting, and I, I I find a lot of the the ways that these small, closely held entities are governed and how people resolve conflicts um, re- really interesting, and um, and partnerships and things of that nature. So, um, and most of the time, the people that are in these businesses are pretty sophisticated folks that have a lot of interesting things going on and you get to learn about their business. Which what I- do you think is something you've learned about how people operate with each other and or do business from, you know, the decades you've been doing these business breakups and divorces? Yeah, I guess what I've learned is that there's a lot of faith and personal relationships and trust that leads to a lot of underlawyering on what I call the front end, you know, the formation of the entity, the governance documents, you know, and the kind of clients that I typically represent, they have, they might've gotten a form off the internet for an operating agreement. They might not have any operating agreement. Um, someone who has a lot of money may have taken them in as a sort of a sweat equity kind of person. And they never really had anyone review the agreement. There's just a lot of faith and trust and not a lot of homework done and then everything's fine until it's not. And then when it's not, and you suddenly realize that, you know, you've got a really one-sided agreement or, or you've got lack of control over basic things like bank accounts, um, it can become quite a struggle. And uh, I think there's a, there's a moment where people realize that I'm in a very complicated relationship. Sometimes there's debts to uh, banks and, and things like that. And, and, I can't extricate myself from this without a lot of time and money and a hassle. And if there's hard feelings and resentment uh, on the other side, they can really get expensive. And that so that early trust 
it's it's a lot like counseling people that they have to go get a prenup. Uh, I was about you know, to say, I, I'm seeing the analogy coming down the road. Yeah, 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 I know. I'm, I'm pretty predictable. But yeah, it's really hard to say. There's, there's that same feeling of, you know, we've got this business together or, you know, we have this piece of property together or whatever we're doing. And I know so-and-so from my community and and they're a great person and everything's going great. And then uh, something happens and, and it doesn't. And and oftentimes once it turns, there's a, it just gets really bitter. <laughs> um, people get funny when it comes to money. Yeah. I mean, when I tell you, I don't, I don't do a ton of that, but I do some of it, but it's easier to deal with people, clients, in my opinion, who are going to go to prison than who are going to have to shell out cash. Well, I, I'll take your word for it. I, I, yeah. I don't know. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me. It's, it really does. Um, I, you know, it's, I feel, I feel for a lot of my clients who, who are often uh, just regretful. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounded like a good idea. They got business married. They didn't do their prenups properly. And now here they are. And then they need you. Right. And then, you know, and then you're oftentimes in a, in a judicial system that doesn't always have a lot of experience with these issues. And it can be a challenge to get a judge who, you know, and, and that's not to say there aren't judges who are familiar with this. I, I don't want to mean anything that's disrespectful, but, you know, a judge's day will often not include a you know, dispute between two LLC members. Um, he or she may be hearing cases about, you know, all the usual stuff, uh, criminal stuff, DUI, intersectional accidents, um, you know, name change petitions. You know, there's a lot of things that happen in a judge's day, but not necessarily that. So I always try to start from the position of, of ground level and just say, you know, these two people have an entity. It's this kind of entity. It's got this operating agreement. The issue is about X. and um, and I think most most judges appreciate you starting from the beginning, and they're pretty good at telling you. In my experience, we get it, Mr. Feldman. Get me to this issue, um, right. but I'd rather start from the, from the beginning, just because I don't always assume that every judge has taken these classes. And candidly, in law school, I was really interested in clinical practice, so I didn't take corporations, I didn't take commercial credit, I didn't take a lot of these courses. I learned all this from the practice. When I found the judges would rather look smart and tell you, hey, Mr. Feldman, I know what you're talking about. Let's move on to the next thing than to say, back that up a second. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. We, you, we fast forwarded past the good part, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, okay, so you're at this bigger firm, you know, doing your thing. How do you end up now you're a solo, right? You're on your own. I'm assuming am... you got fired and that was that? Well, uh, no, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, well, I've been on my own since 2018, since February 2018. But uh, in between, I was at two firms, uh, smaller firms back in the suburbs. And, you know, what I discovered was um, I, I was an equity partner at McCarmy Kraken. Um, I was very, very lucky. At the time, there was no such thing at McCarmy Kraken other than an equity partner when I was made partner. Um, that was before large firms started having multiple tier equity structures and non-equity structures. And so um, I was very fortunate timing-wise. And I had a lot of great mentors there. But what I learned was that I was a service partner. And what that meant was uh, I worked other people's cases uh, for their clients and I made them look as good as I possibly could. And uh, the value that I provided was that service. And that meant that I really didn't have a lot of control of my own destiny. And I really came very slowly. <laughs> I wish I was smarter when I was younger, but I came very slowly to the realization that if I don't have clients of my own, I don't really have a lot of control over my practice. And so my focus became that. And I realized that I was going to have a very difficult time doing that 
and sort of forging out and making something of my own um, at a large firm where the rate structures are what they are and and um, and you know conflicts and all the typical things that come with a big firm. So I had I had a friend who I'd started working with on different matters who was out in the suburbs closer to where I live. And uh, he had a firm that did entirely transactional work at the time, and he was looking for someone to uh, broaden the practice with litigation work. And so it seemed like a really great opportunity, and it was uh, to try and uh, take his base of clients and provide them with another service. And so I went out there and started the litigation practice. And uh, and to this day, um, that's Starfield and Smith in Fort Washington, and uh, hi, Ethan Smith, if you're listening, and, and David Starfield. Um, and uh, they were great and gave me an opportunity to learn a bunch about what they do, which uh, represents, they represent lenders. And um, and we started to build a practice. And that's where I started to get my, my first referrals and clients of my own. Um, but what happened eventually was that um, I was looking for someone, uh, for a platform where my growing clients could get more done. Mm-hmm. You know, so they had different needs. And uh, the the... Starfield firm was super accommodating, but they really did have that focus on, on representing lenders, which my clients generally weren't. So uh, I went to Friedman Schumann, which was more of a general practice firm, did a lot of more different things. And that really helped me grow my base further. And then in 2018, I got to the point where I finally could make the move on my own. And then you've been in a home office since then, did the virtual thing? Yes, I have a virtual office uh, in Plymouth meeting. Uh, I'm sorry, it's the it's the law of the suburbs that if you have a conversation, someone has to start mowing a lawn. Uh, so I can't hear it. So you're okay. Okay, okay good. Um, so yes, I, uh, I I maintain a virtual office. I work from home most days. Um, I meet clients and and get mail and do officey things <laughs> in my office location. But I think um, what's been wonderful, uh, what's it really enabled me to have my own practice is the modern practice of being able to have as you need it overhead. So when I need space, I pay for it. When I don't need space, I don't pay for it. And, and are you using like a Regis or something? It's similar. Yeah, it's uh, it's called the American Executive Centers. A lot of folks in Montgomery County uh, Bar Association are there. Um, some actually rent space day to day, and some have a virtual setup. And I'm I'm in the virtual camp. So whenever you need a room, you can reserve it and go use it. Yeah, yeah, and they have a lot of uh, business auxiliary services like notaries and paralegals and things like that that you can pay as you need. Nice. So, so yeah, it's been you're hard. on your own and you mostly do this business litigation. That's kind of your niche down area. Yeah, I've I started I do mostly business litigation, a little bit of trust and states litigation, orphans court litigation. Um, I also do quite a bit of work as an arbitrator, uh, a private arbitrator. So I work for the AAA and I work for uh, two other companies and uh, I do that's, that keeps me busy uh, when I'm not representing people. So for people that don't know, AAA is not the car <laughs> right. company, right? American right. Association of Arbitrators? That, uh, it's American Arbitration Association. I was close. Uh, so what's what's that like? I mean, so for those who don't know, because not it's not just lawyers that listen to this, why don't you tell people what an arbitrator is and what that's like and, you know, sure. what it entails? Um, so I'm sure that the, the lawyers who listen are familiar with it, but for those who, who don't practice um, or don't have the experience... So an arbitrator is a private, typically neutral, although there can be other structures, uh, a neutral person who decides cases. And it's typically done through agreements uh, where parties have agreed in advance that if they have a dispute, 
they will take their dispute to a private arbitrator or arbitration company as opposed to the judicial system. Uh, parties can sometimes opt in afterwards where they say, hey, look, you know, we're in, rather than go to court, let's go to an arbitrator. And uh, the American Arbitration Association is a large nonprofit company that uh, provides this arbitration service um, and is frequently the, the party named in these arbitration clauses and contracts and things like that. So you sit on these cases. How does that work? You're, I mean, you're essentially like a, excuse me, like a mini judge, right? Yes. Uh, I am, uh, I'm deciding folks' cases. They make a presentation in accordance with the rules that they've chosen to apply. You know, most arbitration companies have different sets of rules for different types of cases. And then at the end, I issue an award, and that award can be enforced as a judgment um, in court and then collectively. And wh- what do you think? Do you like doing it? Do you not like doing it? You know, really do they give you a black robe? How does it all work? <laughs> no, uh, it's uh, one of the nice things about being an arbitrator is is it, it allows some of the uh, pomp and circumstance of the judicial system to to go by the wayside. You can get sort of get down to brass tacks. Um, I I really enjoy being a, a, an arbitrator, a neutral, and helping people decide their cases. Um, it's something that. Uh, I find really intellectually challenging. And also um, there's a real human story to these cases that I enjoy. And, you know, I do quite a bit of work with consumers on consumer law cases as an arbitrator. Um, I have a, there's a national class action uh, that involves vehicle defects where I spend a lot of time with folks that have problems with their cars. Um, at something that I, I really didn't know much about. Um, in terms of this particular, you know, I didn't do lemon law. Right. But, you know, people come on and and they, they're living with a car that they spent a lot of money on and doesn't work and it affects their lives. And um, a lot of times they have no idea what this arbitration system is, what their claims are, what their rights are. And I don't represent them, but I can sort of explain the process to them. And a lot of times it's a real opportunity to sort of uh, represent the, the legal system to people and try to explain to them what's going on and, and try to do a little bit of public service along the way. Um, and and I, when you, so when you're at a cocktail party and you tell people you do arbitration and they say they've read in the news, oh, this thing's got a mandatory arbitration or that thing's got mandatory arbitration. Do you tell people stay away, you know, don't give up your rights or, or what's your position on that? You know, it's complicated. Um, it's, uh, it really, it really depends. I mean, a lot of times you have to decide whether it fits your, your business model. Um, there's a confidentiality, excuse me, confidentiality aspect that's really important to some businesses where you, you just don't want all your dirty laundry aired in court um, and public record, uh, particularly if there's any sort of media interest. I, I think where people get upset is uh, in the consumer context where you know they they click through some web page and the next thing they know their their rights are somewhere where they don't expect them. But it's such an interesting area of the law that it's recently turned upside down. I don't know if you're familiar with some of the strategies that have been going on, like involving TurboTax, where uh, there was essentially there was a well, I'll try not to bore your audience. Basically, for a long time, arbitration was used to defeat class actions by, in addition to giving up your right to go to court, you give up your right to participate in a class action. And what some very creative and enterprising uh, claimants lawyers have done is they've mass filed arbitrations that require the company to pay the arbitration fee over and over and over again. So 
you know, a company like TurboTax, and I'm not picking on them, it's just they they happen to be one of the first companies that was subject to this strategy. Um, they wound up facing a tsunami of arbitrator fees and arbitration fees that uh, sort of uh, hoisted them by their own petard, if I can put my English major right. on, uh, hat on. So uh, it's it used to be, uh, well, you know, I think uh, famously, Hooters had a, had one in their employment agreement that was very one-sided and uh, went up and down the courts. Um, there's a lot of employment context where it's, and obviously in the Me Too era, keeping things silent has been very damaging to some people. So it's complicated in, in a lot of different ways, but it, there's so many different aspects to how arbitration clauses are used that, and it's hard to say, don't do it, always do it, never do it, but it definitely deserves more thought than it gets. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a good answer. Uh, and we'll see if you have a good answer to this next one. So you're an English major. So what is your position on the Oxford comma? I knew this was coming because I've listened to every episode of this. All right. Show. Good. Good. So and uh, and I promise I've only spent many, many hours preparing this answer. Excellent. OK. And I've heard I've an heard entire degree. Uh, <laughs> right. So uh, you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut, uh, the, the author, and he's a favorite of mine. And uh, and by the way, his books are still being banned. And if you're hearing this and you're thinking about banning his books, do not. Um, but uh, he has this great essay where he talks about how what part of being a writer is to make it easy on a reader because reading is very difficult. Reading is something you go to school to learn how to do for years. And so my feeling on the Oxford comma is anything you can do to make it easier on a reader, do. So in the context, if the comma is going to add information and meaning and, and make it clear, then add it. If it's going to make things less clear by adding it, if it's going to, then don't. Um, in general, I do. Um, I tend to be pro Oxford comma because I think it helps the reader make a distinction sometimes. But uh, but ultimately, I'm going to I'm going to point to Kurt Vonnegut and say anything that helps a reader do his or her job. And that's how I try to write, too. A lot of the job involves writing. And I always try to think reading is hard. Reading is difficult. And, you know, break things into smaller pieces. <laughs> I'm, I'm famous for using the bold italicized font to emphasize things, which I know awesome, awesome. It can be, it's not a typical lawyer context uh, style of writing, but I, I find anything that really helps focus emphasis is helpful. So my, that's my English major answer to anything that helps a reader is a good thing. Oxford comma can be one of those things. I actually think that's the most lawyer answer because that was the longest, uh, essentially <laughs> it depends that we've gotten on the show. So well played, well played. I, well, that's a product of overthinking, which is often the disease that lawyers have that I yes. as well. No, good job. I liked it. Uh, all right. So what is something that people are really into that you just don't get the point of? Wow. Uh, I should have been more prepared for this question. Um, there you go. Everyone focuses on the Oxford comma. I they don't did. Think about the hard I'm so one. ready for the other one. Um, I, well, is crypto a fair answer? Fair, um, yeah. I mean, people are uh, not into it right now. I, I honestly do not believe in it, and I respect people who do. And I know there's a lot of folks at the Montgomery County Bar Association who practice in that area and invest in that area and have made serious commitment to learning about it. I personally do not believe it. Uh, I don't. I just don't. As a, as an asset now, the blockchain technology I think is going to have a lot of uses, but. Crypto in and of itself is is something that I, I 
I, I believe it's on the order of magic beans. Um, except when you buy someone's magic beans, at the end of the day, you still have beans. Uh, and I'm not, whether they're magic or not, and I'm not confident that crypto is, is anything. All right. Uh, or NFTs. What, yeah, same family. Mm. Uh, what's something you get wrong almost every time you do it? I, uh, I well, I'm a fast typist, but I, I, tend to, I tend to mistype a lot of words. Um, refrigerator and restaurant for some reason are tough ones for me. I don't know. I, uh, I had a, uh, a lot of speech therapy growing up. I couldn't pronounce the letter R. So I think when I have a lot of R words, they get to me. Uh, <laughs> I think they trigger me even when I'm typing. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And my wife actually was a speech therapist before she had her current job. So, uh, although she never worked with kids, she always did, um, adults. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of speech therapy, but, uh, it uh that's i do i do mistype a lot of words and is it the same mistyping every time i think so i think there's some words that just get me and yeah. i i have become very fast at the backspace and and correcting um i learned to type in high school uh with personal typing on a typewriter and i did it then too <laughs> oh interesting all right and then uh we'll leave it here but what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given mm. i Again, I, I, I should have prepared for this more. I'll say uh, one of the things that my dad uh, tends to say is that if you can laugh about it, then you can, it's not too bad. You can live through it. If you can laugh about it, he, uh, that's his philosophy. Um, so he tries to uh, encourage, you know, not to take anything too seriously. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, you need to have the ability to laugh. I think that's really important. Um, and I think, also, uh, something that I, I couldn't point to a particular person, and I'm going to disappoint someone, but just the, the emphasis on uh, trying to leave people a little bit better than you found them. I know it's sometimes referred to as the campfire rule, trying to mm -hmm. leave place a little bit better than you found it. Um, I, that's something I, I really do believe in. I get a lot of phone calls throughout the day from people that are just looking for lawyers that found me on the internet, et cetera. And a lot of times it's not the right situation where I can help them. They don't, I don't practice in that area or or it's not something that I do, but I do try to leave people a little better off than I found them. And I, I really, you know, whether it's referring them just to a person or a service, I just, I, I really encourage everybody, whether you're a lawyer or, or whatever you do, if you can add a little kindness or a little compassion or a little empathy to somebody's day, um, it's going to, it's going to improve everything. It's just that, so important. That's great. And especially in today's day uh, and age, I think we'll leave it there. Jeff, where can people find you on the internet? What, what are your socials? What's your website? Oh, um, so my law firm is the Feldman Firm LLC. Uh, the website is www.thefeldmanfirm.com. Um, you can reach me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, -F, at thefeldmanfirm.com. I'm on LinkedIn as Jeffrey S. Feldman. Uh, I'm on uh, Twitter at, at Jeff underscore Feldman. Uh, and I'm on Facebook as the Feldman Firm and Jeffrey S. Feldman. Awesome. Sounds like you're everywhere and you're doing it right. Um, I, I'm trying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, so say we all. So say we all. Well, Jeff, I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. And uh, it's been good chatting with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm a fan of the show. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. 
No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.